0: Teach your children well
1: On March eleventh, 1970, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young teamed up to release Deja Vu. Fifty years later, we induct it into 94.3 The Drive's Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker with 94.3 The Drive music director Mike Young. Hi, Kelly. Now, to understand how Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young came to be, we first have to go back to the formation of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So in 1968, David
0: Crosby, Stephen Stills, and Graham Nash got together to form what was dubbed a folk rock supergroup. And their formation actually occurred out of happenstance when they were all at the same place at the same time and performed together. And they discovered that they actually harmonized quite well. Now, two of the three were actually free to do whatever they wanted as Crosby had been asked to leave the Birds in late 1967. Shocker. And Stephen Stills' band, Buffalo Springfield, had broken up in early 1968. It wasn't until Graham Nash left his band, the Hollies, in December of 1968 that they were all committed to the idea of Crosby, Stills and Nash and by early 1969, the trio had signed a recording contract with Atlantic Records. Their first album, self-titled, was released in May 1969, and from which came two top 30 hits, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, which hit number 21 on the Billboard charts, and Marrakesh Express, which hit number 28.
1: Okay, so in order to tour the album, the trio hired drummer Dallas Taylor and session bassist Greg Reeves, who were both on the cover of the album, in case that ever confused you. Although they still needed a keyboardist, Ahmet Erdogan suggested Neil Young, who'd played with stills in Buffalo Springfield, and after some initial reluctance, and after considering Jimi Hendrix and Steve Winwood, the group agreed to add Young. So the band, now named Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, started their tour and played their second gig ever at Woodstock in the early morning hours of August 18, 1969. And by the time they played at Woodstock, they'd already begun the recording process for this first album with Neil Young on board.
0: The album was recorded between July 1969 and January 1970 at Wally Heider Studio C, San Francisco, and his Studio 3 in Los Angeles. It was produced by all four members of the band, and Steven Stills estimates that the album took around 800 hours of studio time to record. Now, that figure may be exaggerated, even though the individual tracks display a meticulous attention to detail.
1: Young told Rolling Stone in 1975 that only helpless, almost cut my hair and Woodstock were band sessions and that, quote, all the other songs were combinations, records that were more done by one person using the other people. Those other songs were recorded as individual sessions by each member, with each contributing whatever was needed that could be agreed upon. Young appears on only half of the tracks, with Nash stating he, quote, generally recorded his tracks alone in Los Angeles, then brought them back to the recording studio to put our voices on and then took it back away to mix it.
0: Comment in the album to Hit Parader in 1971 still stated, getting that second album out of us was like pulling teeth. There was song after song that wouldn't, didn't make it. The track Deja Vu must have meant 100 takes in the studio. But Carry On happened in a grand total of eight hours from conception to finished master, so you never know.
1: And speaking of Carry On, when nearing the end of the recording sessions for Deja Vu, Graham Nash told Stephen Stills that they still didn't have an opening track. Many recording acts or producers prefer to start an album with a particularly catchy song in order to set the mood and encourage listeners who are checking it out for the first time. And according to session drummer Dallas Taylor, quote, the song was written in the middle of the Deja Vu sessions when Nash told Stephen they still didn't have the opener for the album. And it was something of a message to the group since it had become a real struggle to keep the band together even at that point. Stephen combined two unfinished songs, stuck them onto a jam that we'd had in the studio a few nights before, me on drums and Stephen on a Hammond B3 organ. That struggle to keep the group
0: together was a black cloud hanging over the entire recording process for the album. During the sessions, David Crosby would often break down and cry to a point where he would admit that he couldn't function. And this was due to the death of his girlfriend at the time, Christine Hinton.
1: So during Crosby's time with With The Birds, he had dated Hinton and the two had fallen in love. However, when Crosby got kicked out of The Birds in 1967, he took a sabbatical to Florida where he happened upon the relatively unknown Joni Mitchell performing in a local club. Enamored with her beauty and her talent, Crosby promptly broke up with Hinton to become Mitchell's boyfriend and de facto manager, eventually getting her a record deal and launching her to superstardom. While dating Mitchell, Crosby formed Crosby, Stills and Nash and started writing the song Guinevere about Mitchell. But they broke up before he could finish it. Mitchell would go on to date Graham Nash for a short while. So Crosby did what anybody would do and reunited with Hinton and finished the last two verses of Guinevere about her. On September 30th, 1969, Crosby, Stills and Nash's debut album, which included Guinevere, went gold. On that same day, Christine Hinton borrowed David Crosby's VW bus to take her two cats to the vet en route. One of the cats jumped into Christine's lap, startling her and causing her to lose control of the vehicle, which drifted into the next lane and collided head-on with a school bus. And she died in that accident.
0: In addition to Crosby's deteriorating mental condition due to the loss of Hinton, both Graham Nash and Stephen Stills were going through their own relationship struggles. Nash stated to Music Radar, the mood was different to the first album, which was recorded while the band were in love, and by the second, quote, Joni and I had split up, Stephen and Judy had split up, and Christine had just been killed. It was all dark.
1: And of course, four hugely creative minds are not meant to get along for a long period of time. Members began to critique each other's contributions, causing friction with Crosby. Crosby stating to Rolling Stone, quote, I kept almost cut my hair in there over the protestations of Stephen, who didn't want me to leave it in because he thought that it was a bad vocal.
0: The song describes a real-life dilemma faced by many hippies, whether to cut one's hair to a more practical length or leave it long as a symbol of rebellion. It features solo vocals by Crosby, with the rest of the band joining in on instruments rather than on vocal harmony, as in many of their other songs. Crosby's song has been credited with popularizing the idea of long hair as a deliberate and visible symbol of the wearer's affiliation with the counterculture and opposition to establishment values. James Perrone, historian of music and the Vietnam War, wrote that, quote, More than any other song of the entire era, it captures the extent to which the divisiveness in American society had boiled over into violence and terror. It became one of Crosby's signature songs and probably his most important political song. And Crosby himself stated, quote, It was the most juvenile set of lyrics I've ever written, but it has a certain emotional impact. There's no question about that.
1: Stills brought Woodstock to the band, having already worked out the arrangement for it while playing with Hendrix in September of 1969, shortly after Woodstock. This version actually saw the light of day on the posthumous 2018 Hendrix album, Both Sides of the Sky. Woodstock was one of the few deja vu tracks where Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young all performed their parts in the same session. Later, the original lead vocal by Stephen Stills was partly replaced with a later vocal recorded by Stills, who recalled, I replaced one and a half ver- Verses that were excruciatingly out of tune. Neil Young disagreed. Of course, he's Neil Young, (laughs) speaking of vocals. Speaking of
0: excruciatingly out of tune.
1: (laughs) Saying that the track was magic, and then later on they were in the studio nitpicking and Stephen erased the vocal and put another one on that wasn't nearly as good. Stills also made Nash
0: change Teach Your Children from a Henry VIII-style song to a hit record with Country Swing. Nash, who's also a photographer and collector of photographs, has stated in an interview that the immediate inspiration for the song came from a famous photograph by Diane Arbus, child with toy hand grenade, in Central Park. The image? depicts a child with an angry expression holding the toy weapon, prompted Nash to reflect on the societal implications of messages given to children about war and other
1: issues. And that Henry VIII-style song they're talking about, I believe that's a 1960s hit that went, I am Henry VIII, (laughs) I am, it was something, it was like I yes, Herman's Hermits. (laughs) A novelty-type song, and teach your children? I'm glad they did it the way they did it. Drummer Dallas Taylor and bassist Greg Reeves play on the majority of tracks and are credited on the cover with their names in slightly smaller typeface. And if you think Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were the only big names on the album, you'd be wrong. Grateful Dead guitarist Jerry Garcia plays pedal steel guitar on Teach Your Children, and uh, he did that to help his own band out. Garcia had made an arrangement that in return for his playing Steel on Teacher Children, CSNY would help members of the Dead to improve their vocal harmony for their upcoming albums Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. In addition to Garcia, former Love and Spoonful leader John Sebastian plays Harmonica on the title track.
0: Now the anticipation was so big for this album, I mentioned earlier that this was a folk rock supergroup and supergroups were still relatively unheard of and new at the time, Atlantic Records, took $2 million worth of pre-orders in January of 1970, a couple of months before the album was set to come out. Uh, however, as usual with these albums, contemporary reception was mixed. Robert Christgau said there were five or seven memorable tunes, and it was Young's guitar with help from stills and hired hands Taylor and Reeves that make the music work, not those blessed harmonies.
1: You know what, five or seven memorable tunes, that's pretty good batting average.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good, considering that I think there are only nine or ten yeah. tracks on the record. So
1: Langdon Warner, writing for Rolling Stone, said, Despite the addition of Young, the sound is still too sweet, too soothing, too perfect, and too good to be true. And side two has... Quote precision playing, glittering harmonies, a relaxed but forceful rhythm, and impeccable 12-string guitars, but no first-rate songs. However, it did have high praise for Carry On, Teach Your Children, and Helpless.
0: Now, the popularity of this album contributed to the success of the four albums released by each of the members in the wake of Deja Vu. Neil Young's After the Gold Rush, Stephen Stills' self-titled solo debut, David Crosby's If I Could Only Remember My Name, and Graham Nash's Songs for Beginners. In 2002, VH1 named Deja Vu as the 61st greatest album of all time. In 2012, the album was placed at number 147 on Rolling Stones magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. The album has been certified seven times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America, and the album sales currently sit at over 8 million copies, and it remains the highest-selling album of each member's career to date.
1: It was also the last quote-unquote great album from the group. Tensions had boiled over, and it wouldn't be until 1977 when CSN got back together. Together to record another album and it wouldn't be until 1988 that Neil Young rejoined them for a proper CSNY album. By both marks, the counterculture movement had long passed and despite still featuring some great songs and harmonies, the albums just didn't resonate like they had decades prior. For its legacy, its sales, its contribution to counterculture, its musical significance, its incredible harmonies and its exceptional songwriting, we are inducting CSNY's Deja Vu into 94.3 The Drive's Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker with 94.3 The Drive Music Director, Mike Young. Thank you.